Hello, my rebels. Today's podcast, you're going to find it uh, stomach-turning, literally. Uh, so maybe I shouldn't ask you to get a video subscription. That's what uh, we call Rebel News Plus. It's eight bucks a month. You get the video version of this podcast. You also get a couple other shows a week. Um, today, I talk about Catherine McKenna's trip to Indonesia in her 20s, where she did some gross things. Yeah, gross is just gross, though. She did some immoral things, and it's all on video. I wish you could see the video. I'll describe it as best as I can, but this may be the podcast that you want to subscribe to see the vids. Go to rebelnews.com. It's eight bucks a month. Just click on subscribe. All right, here's the podcast. Tonight, Catherine McKenna ate a dog, watched a cockfight, and attended a forced marriage. No, this is not a joke. It's October 6th, and this is The Ezra LeVant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon yeah. consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I is because it's my bloody right to do so. Great scoop the other day by the website The Post Millennial. They found an old travel video featuring Catherine McKenna, the disgraced Trudeau cabinet minister, back before she was in politics. And she was one of four stars, I guess, of a reality-style travel movie. A an early version of a travel blog or those Instagram travelers. But it was turned into a movie, 45 minutes. It was sort of like a reality TV show before those were a big thing. McKenna and three young men traveled together, lived in tents together, really spent every waking and sleeping moment together for 60 days as they went through Indonesia. That's a quirky arrangement, don't you think? But let's put that aside for now. The post-millennial clipped a few moments from the video, and obviously it got under McKenna's skin because she responded publicly this way. She said, Conservatives seem to think a 25-year-old documentary that ran on Discovery's Travel Channel for years is a gotcha moment. So here it is, watch for yourself, then back to this century so we can keep helping people through COVID-19 and build a better Canada. Well, I'm actually glad she tweeted that because I, I hadn't seen the original video. I couldn't find it. I just saw the clips that the Post Millennial had published. So I did what McKenna said and I did watch the whole thing and it's pretty bad. Here, I'll take you through some of it now. As I mentioned, McKenna and three young men went hiking through Indonesia for two months. Better known for its political and social unrest than its surf and sand, Indonesia is one of the most diverse and exciting countries to travel. With the prospect of fun and adventure, our group of four set out to travel from Jakarta to Flores in 60 days, covering a span of 1,500 miles through some of the most remote regions in southern Indonesia. And here's our star. Catherine was the diplomat and the bravest one in the group. But how she managed to keep her sanity with three other guys, we'll never know. I'm going to tell you, it's torture being beside Bilda. I should mention that in the credits rolling at the end of the film, McKenna is listed as a producer. So she helped shape the message. I mean, she lived it, obviously. She was one of the stars. But what she published, what they broadcast, had her approval. This is her message. Take a look. 
All right. Lots of it was boring. Shots of McKenna sleeping on buses is not riveting TV. But pretty soon it got a bit too exciting. It even got criminal. Here, watch this. We picked up a hitchhiker named Bimo who invited us to a Balinese cockfight. We jumped at the opportunity. This was going to be an adventure. And just do It's meant to do like this. It's, uh, it won't see the cockfighting. Ah, so oh. secret code. Yeah. Ah. Before we entered the fight, Bimo explained that everyone who watched had to donate 5,000 Indonesian rupiah, or three US dollars, as a bribe to the police. Apparently, the police would show up and threaten arrest if they didn't receive any money. So to be clear, cockfighting is a crime. It's pitting two animals against each other to the death. It's the kind of thing that Michael Vick did to dogs, the disgraced NFL quarterback who forced his own pets to fight and injure each other. He also did extremely cruel things like drowning his pets alive. He's sick. People who abuse animals are sick. They often go on to abuse people. So that's what's going on here, except that these local peasants were actually affixing blades to the claws of these birds. I mean, birds can hurt each other naturally. Birds do fight with each other in nature. But these men wanted it more violent, more painful, and they insisted the fight be to the death. So they attached these blades to these birds to wound and hurt each other, and they forced the fight to go on till one animal died. It was illegal. So they collected money to pay bribes to any police who happened to come by. And Catherine McKenna paid those bribes. This wasn't something she hid. They boasted about this in the documentary. It was aired on TV, and McKenna, presumably, as a producer, got paid for this. So they filmed illegal animal cruelty. They filmed an illegal cockfight. They filmed themselves not only breaking that law, but putting together money to break another law, bribing the police. And that shocking footage was so salacious, it was bought by the Discovery Channel, apparently. They paid for that, and McKenna made money off it. Here's some more. When the cocks were armed and ready for battle, they were brought into the arena. Only minutes before the duel to death, people were given a last chance to bet. And then the cockfight began. As luck would have it, Bimo's cock won, and I was a few dollars richer. And in tradition, the winner of the fight brought home the loser for dinner. It's fun. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> the loser. The loser. The winner. <laughs> Bimo's family would be eating well that night. I suppose Indonesia is a cruel place, but you don't have to engage in it. You don't have to subsidize it. You don't have to romanticize it, worsen it with such joy. Here's another scene where McKenna is eating dogs. I found out one of the most popular dishes in Flores was dog. Guess what we had for lunch? Now, I don't know how the dogs were killed for her meal. Were the dogs killed Michael Vick style? I don't know. Maybe they were killed painlessly. I have no idea. I understand that some places in the world eat dogs, just like some places eat rabbits, some places eat horses. But would you eat a dog? I mean, would you? 
don't just think of the question, think of your answer. If you were literally starving, you probably would. But what if you were just on a vacation for kicks? Would you eat a dog? Catherine McKennell did. Oh, did I call her McKennell? I meant McKenna. McKennell talks about dogs a lot. I wonder if she's ever had any regret over eating a dog. I wonder what kind of dog she ate. Here's a tweet by her. If only dogs could vote, a total liberal. Yeah, I don't think so, Catherine. Dogs for Catherine. Yeah, I know one dog that wouldn't be. I don't know about you, but dog content is some of my favorite content. Yeah, what was the dog content of your last meal? That's what I want to know, McKennell. My awesome seat companion, Brady, a gorgeous Golden Lab guide dog. Awesome, gorgeous. Just don't say delicious, you creep. I guess once you've paid to watch an illegal cockfight, where abusing animals is literally the whole point of it, merely eating a boiled dog might not seem so bad. Although later in the movie, McKennell moans about missing steak. I presume she means beef, but you never know with her. I can name about I can name about a hundred things that I miss. Miss the cheese, miss milk. I miss cereal. I miss barbecues. I miss steak. Yeah, poor dear. But there's one scene near the end of the movie about a wedding she attended. Now, I understand arranged marriages. It's when a bride's family and a groom's family make an agreement about a wedding, and falling in love is not the key component, but rather the two families' compatibility. There are very many successful arranged marriages. The compatibility of both families is indeed important in life. And many couples in such arranged marriages do fall in love. Uh, in the romantic Western concept of the word, but um, that's not the primary purpose of it. Arranged doesn't mean forced, by the way. Many arranged marriages have the support of the bride and groom. But what you are about to see is not that. This is not two families agreeing to join together. This is an auction. This is the sale of a woman, not two families merging. It's a young woman put up for sale to the highest bidder. Men bid for her. We don't know her age. She might be a teenager. It's hard to tell. Both families do seem supportive, so the documentary claims. But they say the brutal fact of it. She was bought and sold. She was traded for a few animals and some cash. She was sold like property. We have a word for that. Trafficked. She was subject to human trafficking. Take a look. Looks like a traditional wedding feast here. Uh, should be good. I think I've taken a little too much though. The bride price was three buffaloes and four and a half million rupees. And we're eating two of the buffaloes tonight. I've heard of dowries before. It's like a pre-inheritance. But I don't think that's what this was. You heard them. It was whoever paid the most got the woman for himself. That's not an arranged marriage with a dowry. That's not consent. That is a woman for sale. As the evening wound down, our hosts opened up a pink velvet honeymoon room. This was where the bride and groom were to consummate their wedding. But by the looks of the groom, maybe not. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe that girl was actually 18. Maybe it was all voluntary. Maybe she wasn't really sold 
for some cash and two buffaloes or whatever it was. Maybe this is what Catherine McKennell means when she says she's a feminist, go girl power. Just like Justin Trudeau is a feminist, just like Harvey Weinstein is a feminist, just like Gian Gomeshi is a feminist, just like Jeffrey Epstein was a feminist. I believe in traveling. I believe in traveling to places where their cultures are different from our own. I've been to Iraq, not exactly a feminist bastion. I've been to China, not a place to let your dog off the leash. Uh, I was a guest in both countries, though I didn't go to scold them, but neither did I go to participate in things that are morally repugnant to me. Eating dog meat is not illegal, and it is culturally acceptable in some countries. I just don't think I could eat a bite without my body making me gag and throw up. My gag reflex would take over. How could she do that as a professed dog lover? Just how on earth could she do that? But the cockfight, to deliberately cheer and lust for the painful death of an animal. Imagine the people gathered there. Where's her moral compunction? And I'm not sure if it's worse, I think it is, to pay into a bribe fund. So if the Indonesian government, you know, they were trying to stop cockfighting, it was against the law, they had police trying to enforce the laws against animal cruelty, but a bunch of rich Westerners put in some real cash to corrupt the local police, to stop them from cracking down on animal abuse. Indonesia was trying to do the right thing. Catherine McKennell just wanted her documentary and she wanted to film the blood. But what about that marriage? We don't know enough about it to judge for sure. I, I don't think we can trust much that the narrator of this strange documentary says. But if we take them at face value, this was not two families agreeing to join together. This was not two families who believed that their children was a match and that lust or romantic love was just less important in compatibility. I, I can respect an arranged marriage. This was not an arranged marriage like that, though. Going by McKenna's movie, she was a producer, not just a star of it. That young woman was sold for the highest price. Sold. If someone had offered more cash in the auction, she'd be with him. It wasn't really arranged at all, was it? The only arrangement was the paying of the price. We don't sell women. We certainly don't sell girls. That's a form of slavery. That's the definition of trafficking. I think Catherine McKennell owes us an explanation for these things. She wasn't a child when she went there. She wasn't a teenager. Catherine McKennell, I mean. She went there as a grown woman. She was in her mid-twenties already. She was sophisticated already, educated. Even if the decision to do these things was made in the spur of the moment, the decision to participate in a cockfight and bribe police, to eat dog meat, to celebrate a woman being sold, she had time to contemplate them, to think about them. The movie was made and produced and broadcast long after the fact. As a producer, she would have helped choose what was in the final cut. She approved of the messages after reflecting on the whole thing. This is who she is, and presumably she got paid for it. Catherine McKennell is an immoral, unethical woman. <laughs> and if you've got a dog, do yourself a favor and keep it on a leash when McKennell's nearby. What do you think? I think Catherine McKennell has to answer for these things. There is an answer. Does she regret them? Does she regret eating dog meat? But that's the least of it. Does she regret in attending a bloody, deathly cockfight that abused animals? Does she regret bribing police? And does this feminist have any compunction about attending the wedding of someone who was sold for the highest price?
You know, there's not a lot to laugh at here, but we got to have a sense of humor about things. We decided to sell this t-shirt that says, Don't Eat Me. A gentle reminder of what Catherine McKenna did, the least of what she did. If you want a copy of this shirt, go to Catherine McKenna, spelt the right way, Catherine, M-C-K-E-N-N-E-L.com. Stay with us for more. Welcome back. Well, it's about a month to the U.S. election. Extremely exciting. I tell you, there's more news jammed into a day than into a month, into a year in the past. It's hard to believe that it was just a week ago that Trump and Biden were squaring off in the presidential debate. Since then, Donald Trump has been diagnosed with COVID, gone to the hospital, come back. And it's amazing. Joe Biden has done town halls with sympathetic journalists And he's brought out the age-old slur that Donald Trump is a Nazi sympathizer. It's laughable. In fact, as you may know, his daughter Ivanka converted to Judaism, married another Jew named Jared Kushner. Their family is Jewish. The kids call him Zadie, which is the Yiddish word for grandpa. Not just that, but Trump has done what I personally thought was impossible namely bringing peace to large swaths of the Middle East. Forget about small symbolic things like moving the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, but actually brokering peace. Is he the best president ever for the Jews? That's something that's not just of interest to Jews, it's of interest to anyone who wants an election where you don't throw the word Nazi at someone just because they're a conservative. Joining us now via Skype is our friend Joel Pollack. Joel, great to see you again. Good to see you, too. Joel, I I think um, there are Jews who are interested in the subject. There are Zionist Christians who are interested in Israel and being pro-Israel. And there's conservatives who aren't motivated by religion, who just support uh, the West's ally in the region. I think of how I think of Taiwan. I have no ethnic or religious tie to it. I just know it's the good guy. But larger than the case of Israel itself, I'm just sick of the left and the media and the professional hate finders using the word Nazi to demonize anyone on the right. What do you think? Well, it's shorthand for bad person. So I don't know that it necessarily convinces anyone who doesn't already dislike Donald Trump, but it is effective in making it harder to support him publicly, especially because so much of the media agree with what the left is telling the public. They are, in fact, the vehicle and the authors, in many cases, of, of many of these negative messages. So the word Nazi has been cheapened to the point where even Jewish organizations no longer complain when someone misuses an analogy to the Holocaust. When Joe Biden compared Donald Trump to Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi propaganda minister who was Hitler's right-hand man and chief anti-Semite. Nobody complained. The Anti-Defamation League offered a weak statement several days later, but they didn't mention Biden by name. In contrast, when Donald Trump was asked to denounce white supremacists at the first presidential debate, and he did so, they said he didn't do so strongly enough, and they circulated a petition 
to get Jewish organizations to oppose Donald Trump. Now, they watered it down significantly after we blew the lid off it, when we got a leak from someone who was given the petition and they had to water it down. They removed the name Trump from the petition, but they retained the substance. Hmm. There is a real kind of self-destruction going on among Jewish institutions that have been unwilling to stand up against this sort of desecration of the Holocaust because so many of them are owned essentially by the Democratic Party that they understand the task for them is not to protect the community. The task for them is to try to push for a change in administration without risking their tax-exempt status as apolitical organizations. I find it very frustrating, and I see it in Canada too, to a lesser extent. I mean, the ADL, which stands for the Anti-Defamation League, we have sort of a branch of that in Canada, but it's more independent. The ADL is actually run by a former senior Obama aide. So I don't think they're even pretending to be nonpartisan. Up here in Canada, about a decade ago, I was actually on the board of our version of APAC. It was called uh, the Canada-Israel Committee, and it morphed into other things. And there was at least an attempt to have people of the conservative and the liberal and even other stripes on it just to avoid the group think and in the, in the, in the knowledge that, you know, there are changes in party and uh, the opposition today may be in government next time and it's a good idea to have all parties sympathetic to Israel and fighting against anti-Semitism. I find it odd that so much of the official Jewish establishment or at least the so-called anti-anti-Semitic establishment is on one side. You'd think they would want to have friends in all parties and make this an issue about which there is no partisan disagreement. So it's important to understand that the money in politics right now is largely on the left. The reason so much of what is happening, which seems unsustainable if it were to support itself from its own fundraising, uh, continues to occur is because there are millions and millions of dollars pouring in to the budgets of far left-wing organizations, pouring into the coffers of far left-wing candidates who would have no chance in an ordinary time. The money is on the left, and these organizations go where the money goes, not, and I'm, let me just say this as a Jew, not because they're Jewish organizations, because all organizations are doing the same thing. And it is part of what might be called the racism industry. The that's another aspect to this, where organizations like the ADL have to hype the dangers of white supremacy so they can cough up uh, or, or get donors to cough up the money to keep these organizations going in an age where actually the need for an ADL is less than it's ever been before. Jews are widely accepted in society. Jews are very prominent within the president's own family, even though he's very out, out about his Christianity. This is an era where Jews have never enjoyed wider acceptance within American society. And so this is a problem for the ADL. American society is also more tolerant in general toward all minorities, blacks, immigrants, gays, and what have you. So the ADL has to manufacture this crisis to some extent. That's why when there were 200 hoax bomb threats back in 2017, the ADL still included the hoaxes in their annual statistics of anti-Semitic attacks, even though they were fake. And the ADL uses those annual reports to go to donors and members of the public asking for money. And other organizations work the same way, not just in the Jewish community, in the black community, particularly also uh, Catholic community, 
the Southern Poverty Law Center works the same way. There's an interest financially in hyping the danger of these threats. And that's part of it. But the other part is that politically, the money's on the left. Conservative donors are very, very bad at funding the kinds of organizations that would sustain conservative politics outside of the normal election cycle. What you see in terms of Donald Trump and the Republican Party is almost exclusively related to grassroots fundraising, and there are some mega donors and so forth, but those are people who focus on electing politicians and on promoting issues. There are very, very few billionaires on the Republican side who invest in what might be called the institutional right, right. whereas the institutional left is an entire ecosystem. Yeah, you know, uh, we've, we've gone through the Open Societies Foundation, that's uh, George Soros's own foundation, um, it, it's such an interesting website because it's not shy. I mean, they use uh, words to fudge what they're really up to, but they're quite boastful. And they, right on their front page, acknowledge that Soros has given and pledged over $30 billion to these institutional battles on the left. There's, uh, I mean, I think of the families on the right, the, the Coke Foundation, the Coke Industries, um, the, uh, Richard Mellon Scaife was the, uh, if I'm getting the name right, was the fella uh, in the past. <clears throat> you know, they might give a hundred million dollars. They might give a billion over a lifetime. But here's Soros personally in for 30 billion. I think it's not just in the Jewish community. I think it's in the black community, radicalizing that community through Black Lives Matter. I think it's in the environmental movement, which has been radicalized. Um, I think it's in the Hispanic movement, La Raza. I think that that uh, ironically, it's the left with the dough. Uh, I think if you ask the ordinary person, they'd say, oh no, big companies have the dough. Yeah, but they're leftists these days. Yeah, and again, the, the money on the right doesn't go into these kinds of permanent agitating organizations. Right. I mean, the reason you have pro-life organizations is because there are a lot of Christians. That's an organic source for pro-life activism. But the reason you have so much Antifa is not because there are so many Americans who hate America. It's because there's a way of doing this that fits in with the budgets of left-wing organizations. We showed several years ago how many of the original Black Lives Matter protests back in 2014, 2015, were being supported in part by Soros-funded organizations. At a recent riot in Louisville, Kentucky, after the announcement that police officers wouldn't be directly charged in the death of Breonna Taylor, there was a woman who showed up in a U-Haul truck and people ran to the U-Haul truck and pulled out shields and right. signs and weapons. And this woman turned out to be affiliated with a bail reform organization that I believe was also Soros funded. So again, you have this kind of regiment or, or reserve of these uh, left-wing soldiers who are given gainful employment, if you can call it that, uh, during the interim between protest actions. And when things go nuts, then they're always there, you know, they're able to support themselves financially. Um, conservatives don't do this. And I think most people would prefer this part of our political world fade away. It hasn't contributed anything positive. It doesn't increase civic engagement, quite the opposite. I mean, George Soros calls his foundation the open society, but often it's the opposite. George Soros is now synonymous with shutting down free speech, eliminating conservatives from political discourse and turning our cities upside down, which is exactly the opposite of how most people want to live in an open society. Yeah. Ironically, if you mention that, 
That's called anti-Semitic. Even here in Canada, a conservative MP didn't even allude to anything other than Soros money uh, causing strife, and she was denounced as anti-Semitic. Uh, the irony there being, of course, Soros himself um, was born Jewish, but uh, has expressed his antipathy towards the religion and is hostile to the modern state. So it's very crazy times when uh, a defender of Israel and Jews like Donald Trump is called the word Nazi, but it shouldn't surprise us. I'm sure you are called that too, and you're a practicing Jew. I'm not as uh, observant as perhaps I should be. We're called that. It, it doesn't even mean anything uh, when it's thrown against us, but it cheapens the phrase. I wish we weren't called Nazis because we have to keep that wor word like a sharp knife that's not dulled by overuse. Once in a while, you really do have an anti-Semite or a Nazi. You need that word to mean something by calling Trump, you, me, whatever, Nazis. The word doesn't have any meaning. Last word to you, Joel. Well, I think that we have also uh, arrived at the point where there's a larger problem with the way the public has been taught about the Holocaust. You know, especially in the United States, we've taught about the Nazis and the Holocaust as sort of a subset of a larger problem of racial prejudice. So the idea is that there's a slippery slope once you start disliking a certain group of people or if some people are discriminated against or some people merely have less than others, there's a slippery slope to the death camps. And to some extent, I think Jewish people in a, in a well-meaning way have also played into this. But if you actually look at what Nazism was about, Nazism was, Nazism was about the idea that society is defined by races and that races have a place in a hierarchy and that institutional arrangements have to be redone so that each race can occupy its appropriate place. And you start to get into a philosophy that looks a lot more like what the left wants to do hmm. to American society than what the right wants to do. Hmm. I'm not one of those who thinks that national socialism is a left-wing ideology. I don't think we can really describe the Nazis as being left. But I do think that today's left is fascist in some of its ideology and their insistence on the importance of race, which goes against everything in the liberal small L tradition, goes against the best of the American civil rights movement. That insistence on race has a lot to do with the racial theories that really did lead ultimately to the isolation of Jews within Europe, which preceded their extermination. I'm not saying that we're in danger of exterminating anybody in the West, but just this morning, the Associated Press, for example, did an article about how Trump's prosecutors, his U.S. attorneys, are overwhelmingly white, or they're more white than Obama's was. Now, you're not asking the important questions, which is, are they better at fighting crime? Do they get better results? Do they protect people's rights better? Are they an effective check on local and state corruption? I mean, you're not looking at what these attorneys do or what these prosecutors do, you're basically judging them on the basis of race. And this is a rule that the Associated Press only applies to one group. Mm -hmm. You can't use the word illegal aliens or the phrase illegal aliens. You have to use undocumented immigrants, even though they're not immigrants, they're aliens, according to the law and according to common English. You can't use the word riots anymore. AP came out a few days ago saying people shouldn't use the word riots mm -hmm. because of its negative connotations. So the AP is exquisitely sensitive when it comes to everybody except white people. But when it comes to white people, it has no problem publishing articles that are syndicated everywhere about the problem with Trump's prosecutors being their race. And 
we are creating a situation where we're disadvantaging and impoverishing American society as a whole by reintroducing race into our political discussion. If you ask people how we will know when our society is no longer systemically racist, they'll say things like, well, when every race is equally represented in some institution or another. That's the idea the Nazis had. The Nazis had the idea that Jews were disproportionately represented in the professions and in business, and they had to make way for Germans to take those spots, at least as regards their proportion of the population. This is the same logic that's being used by some on the left, but they call it uh, socialism. But it's, you know, it's national socialism. It's essentially fascism. It's a form of uh, racism that sees our demography as our destiny. And it's such a regression that I, I think, at least I hope, historians will look back one day at this moment and wonder how we possibly could have lost our collective minds and lost touch with all the reasons we fought all the struggles we did in the 20th century, only to repeat the mistakes in the 21st. I hope it doesn't come to that, and I hope that our history isn't erased if it does. But that's, that's where we are right now. And uh, I, I think that the lesson of societies that introduce race whether it's apartheid South Africa or post-liberation Zimbabwe, you might even say post-apartheid South Africa, but let me be at least generous there. Uh, any society that reintroduces race is a society on the path to self-destruction. We learn so much from you every time. Joel, what a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for taking the time with us. Thank you. There you have it, Joel Pollack, Senior Editor-at-Large with Breitbart.com. A lot to think about there. Stay with us. More ahead. Welcome back. On last night's monologue, Phil writes, Doug Ford is high in the polls, so why not continue restricting civil liberties? That's what's so terrifying. There are a lot of politicians going back to elections right now. There was just one in the Atlantic. Um, now, of course, Saskatchewan's going to the polls. BC's going to the polls. And I believe that people are afraid, and so they're just, well, let's just stay with the government we have. I think Doug Ford, if he called an election now, I think he would win. I think if Justin Trudeau called an election right now, I think he would win. I think people are afraid, and they're giving up their civil liberties too easily. Dad Zacharias writes, Doug Ford has turned out to be an idiot that follows the perceived vote wind. How sad. Rob must be rolling in his grave. We don't know what two brothers would have said about each other and made Rob rest in peace, but I think Rob truly believed in the grassroots wisdom. Doug, uh, he just, I, don't, I think he's more of a schemer, and uh, I, I think in many ways Doug Ford has shown that he'll switch course if it profits him politically. And on my interview with Andrew Lawton, PJ Smith writes, Andrew Lawton, net positive, I disagree. Biden is still hiding in his basement and this gives Trump time to come out at ra to rallies at the end of the cycle. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, we, we hear that Trump says he will attend the debate next week. So um, things are so fluid, things are happening so crazily. A year in a day, that's how fast the news is moving. Well, that's our show for today. Hey, if you want that Catherine McKennell video, go to CatherineMcKennell.com. Donate me. It's uh, a shirt that you can wear to almost any occasion because it's almost always true. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night and keep fighting for freedom. Mm -hmm.